Good morning, everybody. Good what morning. What a fantastic turnout. This is great. All for you. So that's pretty good. Thank you all for coming. All right. Well, I want to welcome everyone um, here today to this wonderful one-on-one -on -one event that we're so fortunate to be able to do. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. I'm the Newmark Chair in Journalism Ethics at the Pointer Institute and a columnist for the Boston Globe. And I had the great opportunity to be able to cover Ambassador Rice um, when I was at Bloomberg covering foreign policy for eight years and she was first UN ambassador and then national security advisor. So although of course she needs no introduction, let me give you one. Um, ambassador Rice um, has a long history in government service. She served in the Bill Clinton administration on the National Security Council specialized in Africa affairs. She continued to remain engaged and involved in public service and politics, and as you all know, she was uh, Barack Obama's first UN ambassador and then his national security advisor. And um, all of you know uh, a lot more about her because she has remained in the news. And today we are going to talk um, with her about Trump foreign policy and lots of other things. So I want to remind the audience to please silence your phones so we don't get interrupted. For those of you who would like to tweet our hashtag is hashtag TribFest17. And uh, this is going to be 60 minutes long, and we're going to leave about 10 to 15 minutes at the end for Q&A. If you would like to submit questions, someone is going to be monitoring those questions throughout our conversation. I'll be getting them here on this iPad, and I'll be able to ask them at the end. So when you want to submit them, you can do that on Twitter using the hashtag AskTrib, all one word, or you can text AskTrib, one word, to the following telephone number. Ready? 512 549-8450. That's 512-549-8450 with the text AskTrib one word. All right? So uh, I just want to remind you all, for those of you who plan to ask questions, make it not a speech, but an actual question. We're fortunate to have someone Twitter who is helps able. With that. <laughs> that's right, the 140 character <laughs> limit. Um, someone who's able to answer your questions. And uh, you know, why don't we lean on her expertise to do that? All right, so let's get started. Thank you very much for doing this. Welcome, Ambassador Again. Rice. So pleased to have you. I want to start out by what is really in the news right now, which is North Korea. And just today, um, seismic activity was detected near the site where North Korea has previously conducted nuclear tests. The cause is still unknown, but understandably it's making people quite nervous because it comes on the heels of the North Korean foreign minister saying a couple days ago at the UN that North Korea just might test a hydrogen bomb in the Pacific which of course would be unprecedented for many years now if it were to ramp up to that level. So when you see reports of seismic activity, I know you no longer have the same clearance that you had at one right. time in the White House to know exactly what's going on. But you know what goes through your mind as someone who did sit in that hot seat as National Security Advisor? Well, let me answer the question uh, more broadly about North Korea, because today's uh, news is really too uncertain to judge. Um, the South Koreans are saying they think it was a, a naturally occurring earthquake. The Chinese said they thought it might have been man-made, and the United States is saying we really don't know. So we need to wait and see. It was three-point-something on the Richter scale, uh, which is quite different than the almost six-point-something that the hydrogen, or what we believe to have been a hydrogen uh, test, um, measured last week or the week before. So 
um, let's wait and see. I think the bigger issue is what do we do about North Korea in the current context. And on that, I would say a few things. First of all, some don'ts and then some do's. Uh, on the don'ts, I think we have um, contributed to an already serious and tense situation by uh, engaging in the kind of bellicose rhetoric and threats now for many weeks, but again, most recently, during the president's speech uh, to the United Nations that really stoop to Kim Jong-un's level, uh, which is neither customary nor, in my opinion, befitting an American president, particularly from the podium of the United Nations, but also creates a, a measure of uncertainty and causes each side to box themselves in to some extent. Uh, if the rhetoric continues to escalate, there's always a risk both of miscalculation uh, and of uh, a rhetorical war escalating into something else. So I think the first thing we need to do uh, is behave in, in a manner more typical of the United States, which is to be the grown-up uh, in this context rather than um, stooping to Kim Jong-un's level with respect to rhetoric. Secondly, uh, we should not be taking steps or threatening steps that rattle our closest partners and allies in the region. So for example, the threat to uh, terminate the uh, trade agreement with South Korea at a time when South Korea is already feeling very, very vulnerable is counterproductive. And it doesn't serve to give either the Japanese or the South Koreans or even the Australians the kind of comfort and confidence that they need to have in our leadership at this very uh, important moment. And the third thing we shouldn't do, in my judgment, is to engage in uh, action that might euphemistically be called preventive war to unilaterally strike North Korea in the absence of an imminent threat. There has been some talk by senior administration officials of just such a preventive war, uh, and that's very hard to see how that works uh, to our benefit or South Korea's. South Korea, which would be the first impacted by any war on the peninsula, has said that they insist on giving us a green light before we engage in any military action. Uh, I think it would be in our interest to heed that request. There are almost 30,000 American servicemen and women on the Korean Peninsula, plus their families. Seoul is a mere 25 miles from the border um, with uh, millions, 25 million people uh, in harm's way. And even a conventional conflict, uh, should it occur, uh, would have extraordinary uh, human costs. And then there's Japan, which remains in the crosshairs. Again, tens of thousands of American service members, highly populous country. So when we start talking about preventive war, first one has to ask, you know, do we really have the means uh, to uh, take out all of North Korea's capabilities uh, in a single set of actions? I think there's reason to be questioning that proposition. And secondly, we would need to assume that if there were to be a preventive strike, it would result in massive retaliation by the North Koreans because if they fail to do so, the regime uh, wouldn't survive. So that strikes me as not uh, an optimal approach. So then what should we do? Um, I would say the following. First, we need to make very straightforward, plain, clear, unequivocal, unequivocal our deterrent uh, capacity and to reinforce to the North Koreans that there are um, steps they could take which would prompt us to have to respond in such a way that the regime could not survive. But we need to be clear and consistent 
as to what that line is. And obviously any attack uh, or threat uh, or, or actual imminent attack on the United States, our territories such as Guam, our allies such as Japan uh, or South Korea should uh, result, and Kim Jong-un should know it would result, uh, in uh, regime-ending action um, from his vantage point. If North Korea were to proliferate a nuclear weapon, I think that same line would apply. Proliferate potentially to Iran is what some people are now concerned to about. To any state or non-state actor. So uh, those have to be very clear and consistent um, messages from the United States, not in the form of threats, but in the form of declaratory statements. The same kind of clear-cut deterrence that has uh, enabled us to prevent nuclear conflict since uh, 1945. Um, so that's vitally important. At the same time, we should be ratcheting up the pressure and the costs on North Korea. So the efforts that we've taken to increase sanctions, both at the UN and unilaterally, are important and we should continue. We should leave the door open to diplomacy. I don't have great expectations that that will yield much in the near term, but we never should close the door. We should reinforce our allies, uh, both practically and morally. That means strengthening their missile and other defenses. It means strengthening our own missile defenses. Um, but providing reassurance to the allies is critically important at this time. And finally, I'd say we ought to be trying to engage in the sort of dialogue with uh, China, uh, as well as with South Korea and Japan about contingencies on the Korean Peninsula, where our interests align and where they diverge and where we might work together more effectively beyond implementing sanctions together uh, to try to envision a new future on the Korean Peninsula. So those are the kinds of rational, pragmatic steps I think we should take. Um, and I think we need to tone down the rhetoric and the, the threats of uh, preventive war, which have the risk, in my judgment, of escalating the situation to a place that uh, we may not foresee. So in one word, to be clear, when President Trump said at the UN that he, that he could wipe North Korea off the map, like you said, possible. totally destroyed. Totally destroyed. No, no. I didn't say it's not possible. I, I said it's not a productive uh, message to deliver from the podium of the United Nations. And it's not possible or wise, in my judgment, to try to do preventively. A war on the Korean Peninsula, particularly a nuclear war, would have devastating human consequences, devastating economic consequences for the entire globe. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we can all foresee just how extremely dangerous uh, that would be. It's not necessary in my view. I think we can accomplish the goal of protecting ourselves and our allies through establishing a very credible and very firm deterrent if we must. Under the Obama administration, there really was not, uh, there was an attempt to restart diplomatic negotiations with North Korea, but they were considered to be so difficult that the sort of, the six party talks, the five party talks didn't end up going. Um, and the Obama administration was at first criticized for not trying to engage North Korea more, but the response we were always given was, look, Kim Jong-un is like a spoiled child. He wants attention. And the more he says these things, if we respond by saying negative rhetoric back to him, it's just going to make it worse. It almost feels as if President Trump, not just in this venue, but in others, is trying to be the anti-Obama, to do exactly the opposite of everything President Obama did. And he has done the opposite of that. You notice that. <laughs> by, by, by um, you know, getting up there on the world stage at the UN and actually calling Kim Jong-un rocket man. 
You know, so going a step further, sort of lowering to that level of discourse, and then we get back in return from King Jong-un that, that our president is a dotard. So, Which you know, expanded all of our vocabulary. <laughs> yes, we all had to look it up. I admit I had to look it up and look up how to pronounce it. Um, so, you know, where does that take us? It's the opposite where under the Obama administration, you guys were almost ignoring his rhetoric and thinking it'll go away. Under the Trump administration, it's like, no, we can't ignore it. In fact, we have to ramp it up and, you know, threaten him more. Well, we can, let's talk about the rhetoric, but also let's talk about action. Because during the Obama administration, uh, apart from what we said or did rhetorically, we were working with our partners and allies to step up the pressure on North Korea. I myself, when I was UN ambassador, negotiated several uh, rounds of sanctions uh, with the Chinese and others on North Korea, continuing to ratchet up the pressure. I give Nikki Haley, Ambassador Haley at the UN credit for continuing that effort um, with, uh, with ongoing success. Sanctions obviously have not proved to be sufficient. They have constrained the resources that are available uh, to the North Koreans. They have probably limited the potential for proliferation, um, but they haven't forced Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons. We also, in the Obama administration, um, did engage in various efforts to test the prospects of diplomacy. And at some stages, including, I don't know if you remember the Leap Day agreement uh, with North Korea, there was some prospect uh, of progress. And as has been the case both in the Obama administration, the Bush administration, and the Clinton administration before it, these agreements get made and then they get broken by North Korea. So, uh, you know, one needs to, to, as I said, keep diplomacy on the table, keep that option open, but not have great illusions about how productive it's likely to be. Having said that, I do think there is wisdom in not escalating the rhetoric. Um, you know, Kim Jong-un, uh, even more so than his father and grandfather, um, is not, in my judgment, suicidal. He does not want to see his regime or his rule collapse, so there's a degree of rational calculation embedded in that. But he is certainly an egomaniac uh, and very sensitive to criticism. And it's hard to see how poking that hornet's nest um, from the podium of the United Nations or even on Twitter um, adds to stability or our ability to manage the situation. So in that vein, I say it's, it's not wise, not helpful. Um, and frankly, I think it demeans uh, and degrades the United States, our leadership, and most importantly, the credibility of our deterrent. What worried me was I watched that video of Kim Jong-un responding to President Trump's speech. And he was sitting there, you know, it was a very stage-managed image of him in front of what looked like the collected works of the Hardy Boys. You know, all these green books behind him. For anyone who saw that picture, it was kind of strange. And he's sitting there looking very serious, seemingly trying to send the message, I'm a man of book learning. I'm a serious guy, and I'm resolute. And, um, and then the message about the dotard. And so my question is, and you know, one of our audience members asks this, Clay Parham asks, is North Korea a rational actor? You sort of referred to this a little bit. Well, I, I do believe that uh, to the extent that Kim Jong-un has one overarching goal, which is to remain in power uh, and to preserve the stability of the Kim regime, uh, he will not uh, unprovoked take regime-ending action. The risk is that he miscalculates, uh, that he misinterprets our rhetoric or our actions, and 
concludes prematurely that he is in a life or regime threatening uh, event. And in that context, I think there's a risk that he could take a step that we would determine uh, poses a direct threat to the United States or our allies and thus precipitate um, a series of miscalculations that could end up in a very unfortunate situation. I and think that, that is, that I think that is a risk, but I don't think, and that's why I think it's so important that we escalate the rhetoric and de-escalate the rhetoric that we have very clear lines in our deterrent and declaratory policy so that we don't create the kind of ambiguity that could be um, unfortunately misconstrued. So I don't think he is crazy in the sense that he would take steps unprovoked that he would know would result uh, in either his loss of power or the end of the regime. I've seen some credible analysts saying that this is the highest they have seen tensions or the closest we are to some sort of a nuclear conflict since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you agree with that assessment? And one of our audience members, Connor Joyce, asks, do you think a nuclear conflict with North Korea is possible? First of all, I don't think comparisons to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis are productive. Uh, particularly when they come from White House spokespersons, which was the case back in August. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis was something uh, quite different. Uh, the missiles were present, they were uh, ready to be dispatched, uh, and uh, it was, for those of you uh, old enough to recall, a very, very different uh, kind of moment. So I think these comparisons are um, uh, unhelpful, and I think they give people the kind of degree of anxiety that is not warranted. I would never say a conflict of this sort is not possible. I don't think it's likely. Uh, and I worry um, that, uh, you know, we play the role, the United States play the role of the grown-up, so that we take steps on our side not to fuel a potential escalatory cycle that we do not intend. And that's why I do think the rhetoric matters. I do think um, our posture matters. But I don't think a conflict is inevitable. I wouldn't call it likely, um, but I wouldn't say impossible either. All right. Very briefly, Donald Trump has spoken again and again about how he needs to get China on board to solve the North Korea problem for us. In your view, do the U.S. and China share the same goals with regard to North Korea? Is it even possible to get China to be our ally and do things the way we want? Because they don't want North Korea collapsing and all those people coming over the border as refugees. So this is a very important question, and it's one that I think the Trump administration has rightly devoted effort and attention to. Certainly we did in the Obama administration. But we need to understand that while China and the United States share the goal, of a denuclearized Korean Peninsula, and they are not uh, comfortable with uh, Kim Jong-un and the Kim regime possessing nuclear weapons on their border. What they are prepared to do about it differs rather substantially from what we are prepared to do about it and what we would wish they were prepared to do about it. And there are credible, rational reasons for that divergence. The Chinese fear, above all, uh, a collapse of North Korea, and as you said, people spilling across their border, and a failed state with loose nukes um, threatening China's mainland. And so they are very, very reluctant, uh, if not uh, unwilling, to take the kinds of steps economically 
that would so constrain the regime that it risks pushing it to the point of collapse. We obviously would love to see no oil, no coal, no nothing, uh, no financial ties between China and North Korea. And to give China some credit, they have stepped up the pressure, but not to the extent that we want, not to the extent uh, that would threaten the viability of the regime, because they don't view that as in their interests. Um, so there are divergences in methods and interests. Um, and so I think we should not overinvest uh, in the hope that China will come in on a white horse and solve this problem. They, they will not, in my estimation. On the other hand, they're a vital partner. And whether they are working with us or against us matters uh, enormously. And I do think that uh, engaging in a quiet, no, um, no kidding dialogue with the Chinese about scenarios on the Korean Peninsula, about ways uh, that, uh, that events could unfold that could affect them, could affect us, could affect questions about whether there's unification on the Korean Peninsula, the future of our presence, etc. That kind of dialogue in a quiet way is beneficial along with the Japanese uh, and the South Koreans, who obviously have a critical stake uh, in any outcome. So China is important. We need to work with China to the extent we can, but we should not expect China to do things that they judge to be antithetical to their interests, even if we think that would be helpful. And finally, I'd say there's a real question in the minds of our experts uh, in government, our, our analysts, and in fact, in my own mind, as to whether even if China were to do everything we ask for and everything we hope for, even if it runs contrary to their interests, would it be sufficient to persuade Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons? The nuclear weapons for, for Kim Jong-un are, uh, are critical to regime survival. He has concluded that their maintenance is uh, existential uh, for the North Korean regime. And I personally question uh, whether any degree of external pressure would cause him to give up his nukes. I think he'd rather engage in conflict and risk the regime in that respect than give up his nukes uh, preemptively. So that does limit um, both the prospects for uh, diplomacy uh, and um, the, the viability of relying overly on China's actions. All right, let's broaden the lens a bit to President Trump's first speech at the UN General Assembly. Now, you have over eight years in the Obama administration, not to mention before that when you served in Bill Clinton's administration, heard hundreds of these speeches from leaders around the world. Yeah. Well, maybe you Too weren't there many. For, for the Nambia president's speech. I was not. I don't know anybody was there for Nambia. Yes, I know, but President Trump spoke about Nambia. So there, there might be some other countries we're not aware of, new members. So um, I want I want to know how you rate um, President Trump's first Anga speech. Well, let me back up a second. Beyond the North Korea lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before I get to the speech, um, it, a lot of preparation and effort goes into the whole Anga visit of a president. And I myself directly was responsible for eight such visits. Uh, under President Obama, when, whether I was at the UN or uh, in the White House as National Security Advisor. And to give um, the administration some credit, um, they embarked on a very ambitious schedule 
They had four days of meetings, um, which uh, they will discover by year three or four is long. Um, and they had the opportunity to do a fair bit of business. And I hope that behind closed doors, um, some useful business was done. On day one, uh, something rather useful occurred, which is that um, President Trump chaired a session um, on UN reform, how to strengthen the institution, how to make it more efficient and effective. This is a theme that American administrations have pressed for decades and has always been a priority for Obama administration, for the Bush administration, for Clinton before it. And it was useful to see Trump take up that mantle, not in a belligerent and hostile way, which one might have anticipated he would, but actually in a rather constructive vein where he acknowledged that the UN has potential, that it can be improved, that we ought to be encouraging it to improve. And Ambassador Haley, I think wisely uh, partnered with the UN Secretary General, uh, the new UN Secretary General, Gutierrez, who has made UN reform a top priority. And she, working with Gutierrez, got over 100 member states to sign on a 10-point declaration uh, that endorsed Gutierrez's reform efforts. So that was, the, the first day was pretty solid. Then we had the speech on Tuesday. And we've talked a lot about the, um, the risks and the um, consequences of the kind of rhetoric he leveled against North Korea. I won't rehash that. But I think the speech itself um, was problematic in, in other ways. It was actually internally inconsistent. You know, the whole theme was America first, everybody's sovereignty above all, but it was very selectively applied. Sovereignty for us, sovereignty for countries that we agree with, sovereignty for Russia and China, um, but not for uh, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, anybody with which we may have a beef. Um, in a 40-minute diatribe about sovereignty, there was no mention of the most blatant violation of U.S. sovereignty uh, in decades, which was Russia's meddling in our elections. And I think that was um, deeply dis dissonant and discordant. Um, so it, it wasn't logical and coherent uh, in some respects. Um, I'm sure we'll come to this, but he... Um, he went further uh, in his rhetoric on Iran in many respects, and even Venezuela, than he did uh, on North Korea. Um, and then finally, uh, and maybe most importantly, I think the speech struck a, a note of rather dramatic divergence from decades of US foreign policy, where the United States has sought to bring together the international community to lead it, um, from a position of moral and physical strength, uh, and to do so out of a recognition that our leadership serves our interests and that of others. Our leadership is not a zero-sum proposition, as I think President Trump's speech and, and many of his other statements would suggest. What's good for the United States is not necessarily bad for others, and vice versa. Uh, in reality, and what most presidents have understood up until now, is that when we thrive, when we prosper, when we are more secure, um, that can benefit others and vice versa. So it is not 
security and prosperity is not a zero-sum proposition. Uh, and yet, uh, were you to uh, read President Trump's speech or listen to it carefully, um, he was introducing a new notion, which is that, in fact, we are living in something more uh, akin to a zero-sum world. And that divergence from decades of American foreign policy, uh, I think, underscores a theme that concerns me um, deeply about the nature and future of American global leadership. I was struck that David Ignatius of the Washington Post, a very well-respected columnist on foreign policy affairs, um, actually wrote a column saying that he was surprised that I Donald was struck Trump's too. Uh, speech, he called it he said it was basically a pretty conventional UN speech if you cut out the rocket man and that kind of rhetoric. And I was struck that Graham Allison at Harvard, the uh, the proliferation expert who I know you've worked closely with, actually tweeted out David's column and said, I agree with this. I also think it was a conventional speech. What, what was your reaction to that? Well, I admire both David and Graham. Uh, I know them both well. I don't agree. Uh, it was far from a conventional speech. It had some elements in it that you, know, you could have heard from a prior US president. I don't mean to suggest it was entirely uh, out of bounds in every respect. But in so many ways, as I've tried to elaborate, it really did mark a divergence. Um, and uh, you know, I guess you can read the parts and emphasize the parts that, you're, uh, that you find most compelling, either positive or negative. Um, but I, I think the sum of it is, as I said, um, not what you would um, anticipate or hope for from Amer an American president, regardless of party. Uh, you know, we have a long bipartisan tradition um, of diverging on specific issues, but believing in the necessity and the power of American leadership, our moral example, um, and um, the, the, the importance of us uh, playing a role that, that leads and brings the world to objectives that we think are in our interest and mutually beneficial. I still want to leave time that we get to Iran and Russia, but before that, I want to take a sort of macro view of this. During the campaign, um, then-candidate Donald Trump um, you know, was trying to be all things to all people, I would say. He said, we're going to do everything. We're going to be the world's cop. But no, we're actually not the world's cop. We're going to, you know, take care of our own borders, secure our own borders. In a way, it's like he has not been um, a classical interventionist or isolationist. I would call him a transactionalist. It's like whatever he thinks serves that narrow view, that's what he's going to do. How would you classify his foreign policy now that we're getting close to a year in? You know, I, <laughs> I'm not going to step into that trap. I <laughs> not a trap. Just looking no, for no, an ism. No, no, no. I don't. I actually resisted isms to characterize President Obama's foreign policy. Uh, I don't so like isms and doctrines, <laughs> um, and I don't want to impose one even on President Trump. I think uh, there is something, as you said, of a transactional quality uh, to his approach that uh, I, I think is um, atypical, to say the least. But I think the, the real point is, you know, we have thrived uh, and benefited from a network of alliances and friendships that are based not only on mutual security commitments, 
but on shared interests and shared values. And our network of alliances, whether we're talking about NATO uh, or our alliances in the Pacific or our close partnerships with countries in the Middle East, particularly Israel and uh, some of the Gulf uh, partners, are based on uh, shared interests. And in most cases, uh, with the exception, at least with our treaty allies, on uh, shared values. And when the United States declares from the podium of the UN, in essence, we're not interested in how other countries govern themselves. Um, we are not interested in holding up the values of democracy and human rights as <laughs> beneficial to all. And that's essentially uh, one of the messages that uh, President Trump delivers. Um, then we are debasing, I think, our leadership um, and we are, we are engaging in uh, deals or undoing deals uh, on a very superficial basis. And I think that is a problem. I think that if you want to call it transactional, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't dispute that characterization. I'm not sure that's a sufficient summation of the entire approach. But I think the approach that, that, that President Trump um, highlights, which is America first, which as you all know, recalls the isolationist times of the 1930s. And anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, autocratic. Appeasers. Uh, it's not who we are. We have always placed the United States interests first. That is not new. Uh, and it's a false dichotomy to suggest that some prior presidents have put somebody other than the United States first. What is different is that prior presidents understood, as I said earlier, that American leadership and American interests are advanced when others do well, when others prosper, when others are secure, and vice versa. It is not a zero-sum world we live in. And when it is reduced to that, we end up in the backward situation of threatening our allies like Germany and Korea with a trade war, or Canada, or, or Mexico, uh, when in fact we have benefited from a system of free trade and fair trade that um, we built in the post-war era. So one thing that is consistent, whether you call it transactionalist or not, um, Donald Trump certainly views himself as a deal maker, as an expert art of the deal guy. And he um, ha has argued that he can get a better deal than anybody else. And in being the anti-Obamaist, let's call, let's call him that, he pulled out of the Paris Accord and he now looks like potentially he might be doing something on the Iran deal. And Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the TPP, you're absolutely right, that never quite made it because of, of him stopping it. Um, now, the Iran deal, I covered two and a half years of those talks starting in Kazakhstan before they finally ended up in Vienna. I know how incredibly hard it was to get that deal, so to get the P5. You know it much better than the, anyone else in this room, how hard it was to get it and the negotiations that were involved. So President Trump said this week um, that he's made a decision on the Iran deal, which he's called the worst deal in the, you know, the most rubbish deal in history, but he's not going to tell us yet. And, and Prime Minister May, Theresa May of the UK, asked him what decision he had made and he refused to tell her. And she's, of course, one of the partners in the P5 plus one. So That's so much for the special relationship. <laughs> so where are we going with this? If he pulls out of the Iran deal, I mean, does he have any chance of getting a better deal or does this all collapse and Iran goes nuclear? 
If the United States decides unilaterally to pull out of the Iran deal in the absence of any evidence that Iran is violating its commitments under the deal, and there is none, according to the IAEA, all of our partners, even according to uh, the U.S. intelligence community, there, Iran is fully complying with its obligations under the deal. So if we were to walk away under some pretext, uh, and there are many that have been mooted, um, the result would be as follows. Uh, the United States would be isolated, not Iran. Iran would have been viewed by the entire world as having upheld its obligations. We would have walked away. Our allies in Europe, uh, the Brits, the French, the Germans, the EU, which are all signatories to this deal, not to mention the Russians and the Chinese, who are also signatories to the deal, uh, would view us as the villain and the outlier. And therefore, we would have no chance of reconstituting the very intense sanctions regime that we worked for years to build at great cost to them, all of whom have more robust trading relationships with Iran than we ever did, they would not go back to sanctions, which were only uh, agreeable to them with the objective of pressuring Iran to come to the negotiating table and striking a deal. That objective was met, were we to break the deal, uh, there's no prospect for the sanctions to be reconstituted. So who wins in that scenario? The only winner is the Ayatollah in Iran, who is no longer obliged to abide by the constraints in the nuclear program, uh, which had successfully cut off every potential pathway that Iran had to a nuclear weapon. It would mean the inspections, which are more intrusive than any ever constructed, go away. Iran is scot-free. There's no economic pressure on them, and we're isolated. How that helps us or Israel or our allies in the Gulf, I have no idea. Uh, it would be the height of folly and incredibly self-destructive. That is not to say that we don't have extremely serious concerns about Iran's behavior, its support for terrorism, its ballistic missile uh, capacity its efforts to destabilize countries in the region, including in Yemen and Syria. But all of those problems would be infinitely worse if Iran were unconstrained in its ability to develop a nuclear weapon. So the nuclear deal was about nuclear weapons and nuclear capacity. It was not about missiles. It was not about terrorism. It was not about human rights. And as many of you will recall, the biggest Iran hawks three or four years ago um, were most focused on the nuclear program. That's the biggest threat that Iran has. And it was, and we dealt with it effectively. Why we would preemptively undo that uh, when only Iran benefits and we get further isolated is beyond me. Remind people, um the, the Iran deal puts Iran how long of a time away from potentially getting a nuclear weapon were they themselves to unilaterally Were they to break out? Were they to break out? Remind okay. people. So before there was an Iran deal, um, our estimate was that Iran was two to three months away from the ability to, to sneak and build a nuclear weapon if they decided to do so. That's because they had uh, the capacity to enrich uranium uh, to such a level as to be close to um, 
breakout. That's because they had thousands of centrifuges spinning to enable them to do that. It's also because they had a plutonium reactor that they were uh, using as another potential pathway. All of that is gone. The plutonium is closed down. The centrifuges are vastly limited in number. They are not able to enrich uh, to a level approaching uh, you know, the, the, the grade that is necessary for a nuclear weapon. And now the breakout time uh, under this deal is at least a year. And that difference matters enormously because if the United States or others felt it necessary to take military action uh, to deal with an Iranian nuclear program, the difference between two to three months and a year uh, is very meaningful. But it's much more than that. It's more than the breakout time. Iran in this deal has committed never to build a nuclear weapon. It, there are very serious binding constraints on its ability to enrich and the quantities with which it can enrich and the grade to which it can enrich for a decade and 15 years and some instances more. So uh, this deal is strong, it is working, it serves our interests, it makes no sense to cast it aside. All right, TikTok, we shall see. We don't yet know what his answer is, and neither does Theresa May. But uh, if, if he pulls out just very briefly, um, our allies are not going to pull out with him. So then what? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the, what the, the Iranians uh, began to answer that question this week when they said very plainly, if the United States walks out of the deal, the deal is dead. It's not a deal they're going to maintain with the Europeans uh, and the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, and they basically also said, we will feel entirely unconstrained uh, to do whatever it is we want to do. So uh, that just reinforces the illogic uh, of a threatened withdrawal. You know, we can continue to sanction Iran uh, for its support for terrorism, for its human rights abuses, for its ballistic missile capacity, and we have done so uh, under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Uh, people think that somehow Iran achieved some extraordinary windfall in this deal. Uh, they received incrementally funds that belonged to Iran. This wasn't the United States paying Iran or other allies giving Iran our money. This was allowing them access incrementally to money of theirs that we had in the international community frozen. Uh, this deal is working. And for those who want to jettison it, I think it's worth asking, and I ask myself this question quite honestly, was the real worry uh, of uh, those who are most hostile to Iran the risk that they could obtain a nuclear weapon? Or was it something else? Because we've solved the nuclear weapon program uh, for the foreseeable future. I think, and I, and I, I think it's worth uh, considering, that those who oppose the Iran nuclear deal, and still do, are more interested not in preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, but, from, but in keeping Iran as uh, poor, isolated, and debased as absolutely possible. They want to keep a boot on Iran's neck in perpetuity, regardless of whether or not it has a nuclear weapon. Now, uh, I, you and I might agree or, or differ with that objective, but the path that the administration is on, if they are in fact going to abrogate the deal, accomplishes neither. 
It neither prevents Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, nor does it keep a boot on Iran's neck, because the rest of the international community won't be on board with doing so. So uh, this is just not uh, a, a, an approach that um, it serves our interests, that serves Israel's interests, uh, or that serves the interests of the countries in the Gulf region. All right, quick Russia question before we go to more audience questions. Um, you know, you mentioned that in the president's UN speech, he emphasized sovereignty, but never mentioned this huge breach of our own sovereignty, Russian interference in the 2016 election, which has been established and confirmed by US intelligence agencies. Every US president in the recent past has tried to reset relations with Russia. We all remember when Hillary Clinton made that trip to Russia and had the button that said reset. Unfortunately, it was spelled wrong. But um, we all know that everyone has tried to reset relations with Russia. What does President Trump have that he thinks is different, that he can reset relations? Or why is he criticizing everyone in the world except Vladimir Putin? If I knew the answer to that, I'd be talking to Bob Mueller and, you know, <laughs> we could get this all sorted. I don't know. It is bizarre uh, because it, it, there's two separate things. Why have resets failed and why is President Trump uh, so ready to um, excuse Russian transgressions, uh, invite Russian cooperation and collaboration? Uh, and somehow um, protect Russia from the scrutiny that uh, it obviously deserves as a result of its uh, effort to interfere very directly and brazenly in our presidential election. He again, I think yesterday, called the whole Russia investigation a hoax. Um, it's hard to see how that makes sense. It's hard to see why uh, it would not be in the interest of the administration and the president to try to get to the bottom of this, to resolve it, to air whatever uh, uh, issues uh, th the entire episode raises and to work to protect uh, the integrity of our electoral infrastructure uh, and our democratic process. So I don't know what is motivating that. What I do know is that resets, so to speak, have failed uh, primarily for one reason, and that reason is Vladimir Putin. If you think about it, uh, you know, when the Obama administration came in, we had Medvedev as Russian president, and we actually made progress on a number of things uh, in those early years, from WTO accession for Russia, uh, to the New START agreement, to the Iran deal, uh, and uh, we, I was in New York in the Security Council at the time, and I can tell you that the breadth of our ability to cooperate with Russia was um, pretty substantial at that window. And then Putin came back, and there was no prospect for a, a start to. Uh, there was uh, great divergence over Syria and Libya, um, and, uh, and then there was, uh, you know, a, a ratcheting up of, uh, of tensions. And of course, the invasion of uh, Ukraine and the annexation of, of Crimea really uh, threw everything into a very a much more difficult and um, uh, negative place. So, um, you know, I, I think that the United States has an interest 
in being able to cooperate with Russia where we can, where it serves our interests uh, and uh, is consistent with Russia's interests. There are fewer and fewer areas now, unfortunately, where that's possible. But we were able to work with them on the Iran deal quite constructively because in that, in that instance, our interests converged. So there may be some, and, and where those um, are possible, we should do so. We also need to recognize that Putin has decided uh, that our relationship is going to be inherently adversarial. Uh, and we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize that he's not only interfering in the United States elections, he's interfering in the Baltics, in Montenegro, in various different places, even in France. Um, and what he is doing is antithetical to our interests. And we need to respond to that clearly and firmly. And we can't confuse the American public, uh, our allies in Europe, the Russians or anybody else with rhetoric and actions that fudge or, or um, obfuscate the extent of Russia's efforts to undermine the United States and our interests. All right. A lot has been said. <laughs> A lot has been said about President Trump and his allies' war on the facts. The Washington Post fact checker has determined that the president has made an average of almost five false or misleading statements every day that he's been in office. You have personally been targeted by President Trump and his supporters. It began with a far-right conspiracy theorist, the same guy who had peddled um, really outrageous stories about game. Hillary Clinton and a supposed uh, pizza pedophilia ring, which was not at all true. And this person claimed that you had illegally sought the names of Trump associates who met with foreign officials who were under surveillance. The president then came out and accused you of breaking the law. No, I think it was being a criminal. Breaking the law, criminal? No, criminal is <laughs> sort of more pithy. More pithy, okay. Well, now the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, has concluded that you did nothing wrong. And South Carolina Representative Trey Gowdy, who's the same man, many of you may remember, who spearheaded the Benghazi investigations and is no friend of yours, um, has now told the media that after you testified in closed session um, to a House committee that he now believes that you did nothing wrong. So I want you to tell us what is it like to be the victim of a smear campaign and to paraphrase a headline in the LA Times, where does Susan Rice, victim of Trump's war on the facts, go to get back her reputation? Well, as I've said, and as has now uh, been widely acknowledged, I did nothing wrong. I did my job uh, as I should have and as I hope uh, you all would have expected me to do. And I'm proud of that. Uh, and thank you. So I did, you know, I did nothing wrong, and I'm not a victim. Uh, I think it's really important to uh, be clear about that. People are um, saying and doing things that may serve their political interests. Um, I'm going to go on being who I am and doing the best that I can do. Um, I've got uh, a lot more that I hope to be able to contribute uh, outside of government. I've got two wonderful kids and a wonderful husband who um, sacrificed for eight years while uh, I was living in another city or 
and working so hard that they saw very little of me. I am going to invest my time and effort in them and those issues uh, and people that I can positively affect. And if you know uh, President Trump or anybody else um, wants for their own purposes to distract and deflect by um, invoking my name, uh, that's their choice. It's not going to stop me from doing what I want to do. Well, I'm impressed that you would say you don't consider yourself a victim. That, that is impressive because I think I would feel pretty bad if some of the things that have been said about you were said about me. It's not that one doesn't sometimes feel bad or resent it or, um, you know, feel uh, that it, it's painful or unfair, but being a victim is something else. And uh, I think, you know, that's something you allow yourself to be. And it's not something that I have ever wanted to be or intend to be. So what's your larger critique of this war on the facts and the rise of hyper-partisan outlets that have allowed, uh, that have peddled false theories? I mean, if you, I Googled your name this morning just before coming in. I try not to do that. <laughs> yeah, don't. I recommend not. The top article was from a hyper-partisan site that referred to you and former UN Ambassador Samantha Power as the, quote, gruesome twosome by of the way, unmasking. By the way, Fox News is now running you know, supers under pictures that say Ambassador Susan Power. They've now conflated us. Wow. As one person said, it's her picture, but it's Ambassador Susan Power. So I don't know. I love Samantha, but we don't look alike. <laughs> it's the red hair. <laughs> Um, all right, so that was the first article Sorry that came to up. Go on. I just had to <laughs> the third article that came up was a report that was trying to debunk the latest really horrible cr conspiracies out there, saying that your housekeeper was found dead after talking to the FBI. Oh, you haven't even seen this one yet. It sounds like <laughs> she was good yesterday. <laughs> Well, thank goodness. So someone is debunking it, saying she's still alive. But there is a whole oh strand of articles out there claiming that your housekeeper was found dead in a lake or in the river. Seriously? Seriously. Look it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just found out today. Man. So, but someone's so already debunking it. So what about this? Um, you know, um. we have a First Amendment, freedom of the speech, freedom of the press. Mm. But there's a lot of stuff out there that is just false. How, you know, you're, you've been a government official. What should we do about that? Anything? Well, I think there's a much larger issue that goes um, beyond fake news that I'm deeply concerned about. And if you'll allow me to rant a little bit. Um, I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the, uh, the integrity of our democracy. When we have such a polarized political environment. And that polarization is being fueled by an inability to even agree on the facts. So whether you want to call it fake news or opinion, um, we are no longer debating issues on the merits uh, on the basis of a common fact base. Um, we are talking past each other and we are believing very, very different things. And that's hugely challenging uh, and I think hugely detrimental 
uh, to the viability of our democracy. I'm really worried about what's happening on college campuses. I am a profound believer in free speech and debate and um, hearing and airing of divergent opinions, even if they are ones that uh, one might find offensive. And thank you. I've got a college kid now um, who actually doesn't agree with me on a lot of things. Uh, and I'm proud of, uh, of his independent thinking, even as we might uh, debate certain issues. But he, is, he shares with me on a regular basis how um, debate is stifled on campus, how uh, professors um, offer students what they call trigger warnings. So that if a professor is going to share something, albeit factual or analytical, that might risk offending certain students. He offers this trigger warning so that students can leave the room before they hear something that is offensive. And this is happening all across college campuses. Brookings just did a study that was um, picked up on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which I'm not accustomed to agreeing with. Uh, but I agreed with this piece because it highlighted just how poorly educated college students are about the First Amendment. They don't know that hate speech is protected speech. They don't know that it is okay and indeed necessary for people to be able to say what they think without uh, it being constrained by whether it offends. So I'm I think we've got a societal, systemic problem that we need to correct at all levels. We need to teach our kids how to think critically. We need to teach them how to analyze information and be able to assess whether it is true or false and not just consume that which they're comfortable with that comes to them from sources that they prefer. We need to bring back debate and, uh, and, and painful discourse on college campuses so that people go to college to learn something that they may not already know or to challenge their assumptions. And we need our political leaders to be able to talk to each other with civility and respect. And the last thing I'd say, thank you, is if we don't get our act together in Washington and start to engage one another on a bipartisan or nonpartisan basis on the issues we care most about, then not only are we going to be fueling um, the atrophy of our democracy, but we are making it extremely easy for our adversaries, like Russia, uh, to accelerate the degeneration of our democracy. Russia could not have succeeded in its fake news, its use of social media, its active measures, as we called them, if it weren't for the polarization uh, and the propagation uh, of information in streams that we choose to consume rather than in a common vein. Um, and we are handing our democracy on a silver platter to our adversaries if we don't get this uh, resolved and if we don't come together uh, as one country uh, of two parties with the same interests and the same objectives and if we don't start teaching our kids how to tolerate dissent. 
Well, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I want to ask one audience question here, which I'm curious to hear your answer. Aldila Lobo asks, what role should the public play in shaping foreign policy under this administration? That's a really important question. Um, and I, I believe the, pu the public can play an important role. We're at a moment, as I've written, where um, our leadership in the world is um, being undermined, I think, largely by our own actions. Um, and uh, citizens have a role to play um, by conveying domestically and internationally as individual ambassadors through exchange programs, through travel, through um, tourism and, and, and uh, civil society engagement, that we are still who we all believe we are. We are a nation uh, of principles, of values, of respect for human rights and democracy, that we embrace our leadership because it serves our interests and that of others, and that we're not walking off the stage uh, in perpetuity, that what we are experiencing now uh, is not uh, the new normal, it's an aberration. And so American citizens have to be messengers uh, of those values and those interests. And they need to go out and reassure each other and the world uh, that we're not just walking off the stage, uh, that what we are going through now is temporary. And so I really think that, that Even now- Even last eight years. I really think that now, um, more than ever, um, what each of us do matters enormously. And we also have to teach our kids to discuss and debate and to learn and to question and to analyze information um, in a critical way. Um, this, is, this is a big, big problem. And it pains me um, enormously to see that even in uh, institutions of, of higher learning, like the great university whose campus we're on today, and many, many others, um, we are not teaching our kids to be um, effective citizens and stewards of our democracy. Well, that is a strong message and a call to action for all of us. And I want to thank Ambassador Susan Rice so much thank you, for spending the time with us and sharing your opinion and views. Wow. Thank you. I want to uh, let everyone know while you're thanking the ambassador thank that so the much. Texas Tribune has arranged for a sampling from Austin's premier food truck vendors. Food trucks. Food trucks, yay. Serving lunch under the UT Tower on the main mall. And the programming is going to start again at 1.45. Thank you all thank so you much for your much. attention.